Thank you for joining us today as we discuss Black Lives Matter, the statement, the movement, and the various organizations that are associated with the phrase. We recognize the eighth anniversary of the protests in Ferguson that were a result of police officer Darren Wilson fatally shooting Michael Brown. Joining me today are David Ben Moshe, Yermiahu Danzig, Dmitry Shufatinsky, and Noah Shufatinsky. David Ben Moshe is a writer, public speaker, and expert fitness coach who has inspired countless others with his life story and knowledge. He holds his Bachelor of Science degree in Exercise Science from Towson University in Maryland. David uses his words and experience to advocate for police and criminal justice reform. Yermiahu Danzig is an activist for Jewish and Indigenous rights. He served as a squad commander in the counterterrorism unit of the Israeli Border Police. Yermiahu has a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science, Homeland Security, and Public Diplomacy from IDC Herzliya. Dmitry Shufatinsky is a researcher and activist who has written extensively on Middle East politics, Zionism, Indigenous rights, and the Jewish diaspora. He holds a bachelor's degree in international studies and a master's of arts in international peace and conflict resolution from Arcadia University near Philadelphia. Dimitri is a veteran of the IDF where he served in Gulati Brigade. Noah Shufatinsky, also known as Westside Gravy, is a musician, educator, and public speaker. He has performed in front of crowds around the world and has recently made Israel his new home. Noah has a Bachelor of Arts degree in Jewish studies from the George Washington University in Washington, DC. All right, so hi, um, it's nice to be here with, with you all. I think I kind of want to just jump straight into it and discuss a little bit about what David Ben Moshe wrote about Black Lives Matter for before good to go. But so David, can we start start with you a little bit? What was your inspiration in writing the story and 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 the ideas that you wrote for the background or for uh, JILB? So the inspiration behind it was really trying to understand this phenomenon, which has taken so much bandwidth for everyone over the past few years with like the explosion that happened after the terrible thing that happened to George Floyd and kind of think about one, how I think about Black Lives Matter personally and having done that research, how I think other people not should necessarily think, but how they should approach coming to a conclusion about what they think about it instead of just repeating the talking points where you see the left saying Black Lives Matter is always good no matter what. You have the right saying Black Lives Matter is terrible no matter what. And let's look at what's actually happening, think about what's going on, and see whether we like it or not. And also separate between the many different incarnations of this three-letter phrase, which can be very, very different. Thank you. So for you know, every everyone else also tell me a little bit like what do you think when you hear Black Lives Matter? What what are some of the first things that, that kind of pop in pop into your head? I think about um Trayvon Martin, because the organization began around that time. Um, that's when the movement really started to get going. Um, I think, of course, that Black Lives do matter. I think about the history of racial injustice in the United States. At the same time, I think that the organization has started to go the way of movements like Occupy Wall Street, where they get co-opted by other groups with other agendas that water down the message that take the focus away from what the group was supposedly about. I think that a lot of the leadership has become corrupt and has funneled money to their own interests and their own well-being rather than those of the families of the victims as they pledge to help. 
I think that that has helped give ammunition to many groups that have opposed both the message and the organization itself. And also it has watered down the, I guess, admiration for that organization amongst the black community and others that would normally be allies of that messaging of that movement and for the movement for racial justice. And I think it's very harmful um, for both helping the black community as well as in general going in a more progressive direction. So I, I just go piggybacking off of what uh, Dimitri just said. Um, so unlike Dimitri, I didn't hear about it uh, in 2013 with the uh, with the murder of uh, Trayvon Martin. Um, but ironically, my own personal kind of awakening to my racial identity and how I'm perceived in America happened in the wake of uh, Trayvon Martin's death. Um, but like I think a lot of Americans, a lot of people of color, um, I only heard BLM as a slogan or as an organization um, during BLM summer, really. Like, I think I heard it for the first few times after um, the, uh, uh, the, all the incidents that happened uh, in the wake of, uh, of George Floyd's death um, and BLM summer and everything that happened. And immediately there was very clearly a conflation between the slogan and some organization that apparently existed that had co-opted this uh, slogan has and was using it as uh, as a means to represent both the movement and the specific organization. So, uh, like a lot of people, I had to kind of figure out as as things were happening in real time. Okay, what does this represent? How who? What is the actual organization that people are talking about? What is the slogan? What are the, what are the goals of this movement? Because, like most uh, people that were directly affected by the events of uh, BLM summer, uh, a lot of us immediately identified with the slogan. Like, yes, absolutely, you know, Black Lives Matter. But immediately, we're also being told that this organization that represents that movement has a lot of different ideas that not all of us agree with, right? I think. For as a as a member of the Jewish community, obviously its association with anti-Zionism and with criticism of the state of Israel stood out the most, but also lots of ideas about um, socialist policies and certain uh, specific uh, economic agendas, defund the police. Like it was immediately pigeonholed into one thing, um, and so actually reading uh, David um, David's article describing the history and the evolution of the movement. It made it very clear that what we're talking about is something far more complex than just a slogan or a movement or an organization. It's somewhere in between all three of those things. Um, and it made me really think, uh, you know, is this the next movement in terms of like a social ideology for advancing the case of, uh, of Black America? I don't know. I don't know if that's if that's the answer or the conclusion that I would come to. Um, but certainly it, just for the shock value that uh, the just saying those three letters together and those three words together, Black Lives Matter and BLM, it certainly had uh, the, the desired effect in motivating people to go out in the streets uh, and to protest and to demand change. But I think the issue is that in the confusion and in the conflation, uh, a lot of us have really lost what exactly that message is and what kind of change we want to achieve. Yeah, I think um, 
the first time, I mean, I'd, I'd heard of it going all the way back to the killing of Trayvon Martin and the subsequent um, acquittal of Zimmerman. And really when I started like paying attention to it, I'd say it was after Ferguson uh, when I was in high school and it was a conversation we had in my high school. Um, and then I remember at the time thinking, okay, obviously this is a movement and a slogan that everyone should get behind, should be able to get behind. Um, just for the basic fact that it's saying that my community and the lives of my community matters and is important and should be valued um, when there's clear discrepancies in justice. I think that something I started questioning a few years later um, was a little bit about, okay, like this is a good awareness campaign. It's raising awareness to an issue. Clearly it brought conversations to the forefront that I was having in my household and in my community, but obviously not everyone was having um, regarding racism. And I started to question, okay, like what's the next step? Like what is the actual change that's gonna be pushed forward by this organization? Because I saw it, it was going more from just being a movement and friends of mine who would be involved in protests um, and other sorts of activist activities uh, into an actual movement that was taking positions. And I started to notice uh, some of my friends would be in like chapters of Black Lives Matter organizations that would have none of these kind of policies I'd necessarily disagree with. And then I'd have others who were, you know, espousing something much larger as far as these socialist ideas that you mentioned, Yirmiyahu, and also um, anti-Zionist rhetoric. So I, I started to question, okay, what is the effectiveness of this organization? What are they actually doing beyond raising awareness campaign at this point, five years after I'd sort of heard of them and started to have these conversations. Um, and then I think what I sort of think of today when I hear these words definitely is more attached to the actual organization stances that they've took um, simply because I think, especially during like summer of 2020 uh, and since then, the organization has really taken advantage of this slogan and, and made it their own and made their own policies inseparable uh, from this movement. And at the same time, I also have plenty of friends who are involved, you know, in fighting for racial justice and who would go to Black Lives Matter protests who have nothing or no association with the organization. So it's kind of balancing that and accepting that, um, you know, there are plenty of people who are involved in this movement who have no connection or care about any kind of socialist policies, Marxism um, or, or anti-Semitism. Uh, and that this is like an institutional issue that they're sort of taking advantage of a lot of people who are trying to actually stand up for justice. So how do you address um, some of the anti-Semitic rhetoric that has come out of some of the organizations associated with, with BLM? I think the first thing that really needs to be done is discussing the facts and separating between causes. A lot of the anti-Semitic um, anti-Semitic rhetoric that comes from these groups is just like factually incorrect. Things like accusing Israel of committing a genocide against the Palestinian people. Like genocide is a well-defined term and there are problems with what's going on, but it's certainly not a genocide. And then getting them to go back to the issues that we can focus on and agree on. Like things need to improve in a variety of ways for black people in America. And that is a conversation that can be had independently of the situation in Israel. Not that both things don't matter. They're both very important, but you don't need to fix them both at the same time and intertwine them into the same discussion over complicating 
two really complicated problems that both need nuanced solutions. So I, I've encountered this a lot more recently um, over probably the past couple of years where I, I agree with you, David, we have to, to address things that are being told that are just factually or historically incorrect or in, in, in accurate. But I feel a little bit, the pessimistic side of me feels like we're at a point where truth doesn't matter. That any type of anti-Semitism, any type of historical inaccuracies, as long as they're pushing a particular ideology, they keep getting pushed. And I'm wondering um, at one point, especially with um, the issues that Black Lives Matter, that the, the statement came about around, it seems like that, that um, the idea that history doesn't matter, that facts don't matter is overtaking a movement uh, that's very necessary in, in modern times. And it, it could have been an extension of or continuation of the civil rights movement. So what, what do you do, what do we do when facts don't seem to matter? I mean, we see, we see um, you know, these paintings of George Floyd in a, wrapped in a Palestinian flag. And I don't know if there's any other example, any better example of, of something being hijacked than that, you know, this, this mural of a dead man wrapped in a flag of a people that he had no association with. So what happens when facts don't matter? Everything breaks down when facts don't matter. And I would say my most important response to your note is that we have to make facts matter again. I don't think any of these large complicated problems that we're dealing with will be addressed at all if we can't get to the point where facts matter again. And I think that is one of the battles that especially the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values and many other organizations and many great people pushing to make facts matter again, because again, if we don't look at the facts, we can just be having these completely separate discussions and we're not gonna come up with any solutions that are based in reality or likely to work at all. So we just have to address that root problem. Do you think that some people use, um, say a lot of the anti-Semitism or arguably neo-Marxism that's coming out of um, certain, not all Black Lives Matter organizations kind of as an excuse to ignore issues of police violence uh, against Black Americans? Yes. And I'm very big on calling out both sides. I think that is very true. But on the other end, you have people on the left who are using issues of police violence to ignore the black on black violence in America, which is statistically speaking, a bigger problem. Like would I think black lives matter, what I want that to mean is that an organization comes up and addresses every instance of a black person losing their life or having their life taken away from them, which means someone who's shot by another black person. That's two black lives that have now been ended. The one who died and the one who's now incarcerated, which means that's a really big problem for someone trying to make black lives matter fix. I think that it is critical that we don't let causes be hijacked and that we 
don't let either side say, oh, well, you're doing this to ignore the problems that need to be addressed in any capacity. Yeah, and I, just, just to add to that point, uh, and I agree completely, I think that uh, it's important to keep in mind that this isn't the first time something like this has happened. I mean, towards the, uh, the end, the beginning of the 70s and certainly in the 80s, uh, when we had this shift towards uh, black nationalism from the, uh, the legacy of the civil rights movement, we started to see, uh, as David mentioned in his uh, review, his historical review, uh, the entrance of anti-Semitism into, unfortunately, the mainstream. Certainly not the majority, but certainly the fringe was not completely the fringe. It had ad been adopted by some people that had played a major role in uh, in advocating for uh, for Black life and for the for equal rights for for people of all races in the United States. Um, and often we forget that there was this chapter uh, in uh, the history of uh, Black and Jewish relations in America. Uh, and it's impossible for me to to forget that because I'm, I'm also a member of the Caribbean American community and uh, for everybody's familiar with the Crown Heights uh, riots. That's basically where my my parents met in that time period, in that context of probably the 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 lowest point of uh, black Jewish relations uh, in America. Um, and we have to remember that in addition to a focus on the facts, we also have to address these kind of deep seated traumas because uh, it's one thing to point to the beautiful aspect of the Black Jewish partnership, of the of the coming together to to fight on behalf of each other. Um, but at the same time, there's definitely some very deep wounds um, that connect us as well uh, in a way that uh, encourages us to not only uh, call on each other for help, but also to attack each other because of how close we tend to feel. Um, so I think that um, in our dialogue, both in the Jewish community and the Black community and as Black Jews, we need to understand that when Jews uh, who are not part of the Black community look at uh, the BLM movement and just focus on the anti-Semitism to excuse their indifference to anti-Black racism and anti-Black violence, we have to understand that that's also in the context of this, uh, this kind of deterioration of relations over the past few decades. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's a uh, people absolutely use this as an excuse. Um, and for me, the biggest like red flag I see is when people who have like a track record of not standing up for racial justice automatically you and for me, that's equally as, uh, as exploitative when we're talking about hijacking movements, um, when people who have a history of not saying anything about anti black racism, um, all of a sudden want to pull out anti-Semitism or anti-Zionism and, and pretend as if they actually have a care for the Jewish community um, and anti-Semitism that's being espoused only to justify their continuing criticism of any sort of black movement. Um, I think that that's not the case most of the time when people are criticizing um, Black Lives Matter for anti-Semitic policies, uh, especially if it's based in, in facts like we spoke about um, that address specific issues and clauses from different charters. But I absolutely have seen people um, use anti-Semitism the same way as they'll try and use the Black struggle to perpetuate anti-Semitism. I think that there is a danger to not just Black Lives Matter, but many movements for social justice or social progress um, regarding losing the main message. I think in this instance, we have both elements of the far left who are 
co-opting the organization to put the focus more on whether it's the Palestinian issue or their socialist agenda and whitewash the core message of the movement, which is about justice for black people. And I think that the far right similarly ignores again, perhaps unsurprisingly, um, the issue and injustices uh, for black people in the United States and attacks these elements of socialism or uh, pro-Palestinian sentiment in the movement that has been brought up by the far left. And therefore they use that to justify whether it's indifference or just outright racism uh, towards and against the black community. And I think that this has happened since the 1990s with the protests in Seattle against the World Trade Organization. We saw it with Occupy Wall Street, which was co-opted by radical Marxists and that washed away the main message of the movement, which was for economic equality and justice. We saw it with the Arab Spring when Islamists co-opted uh, protests in favor of democracy and human rights. And all the, there's nothing left of any of those movements. I'm very concerned that's what's gonna end up happening with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement as well. I mean, we're already seeing it now as uh, corruption has come to light among some of the leaders of the organization, people have used that as an excuse uh, to ignore or whitewash or erase the history of injustices against black people in the US and to a lesser extent other Western societies um, and ignore the main message. And of course, the tragedy of that is that black people are being ignored yet again and placed at the bottom of the agenda. So one reason that I think that um, one reason I think that we see this happening, this kind of dilution of mess, the message is the push for intersectionality, where if every movement has to be intersectional, then the main goal of that movement kind of gets diluted. However, on the flip side, people push for intersectionality because they say it builds solidarity and allyship. So I'm just curious what you think, um, if you think intersectionality plays a role in either strengthening or diluting the message Black Lives Matter? I think it's good to have dialogue with other groups. Dr. King had dialogue with, with Chavez during the movement for workers' rights. Dr. King had dialogue with members of the Greek Orthodox and Jewish communities. There were, element, there were times where all these elements could cooperate on a common goal for equality, for justice. That doesn't mean that they forgot their own unique identities or unique issues and that they just ignored that and, and sort of watered down their identity and their, their main goals um, for one agenda. There were certain issues they cooperated on and others that they did separately. And I think that's okay. I think that intersectionality has either forgotten how to do that or for whatever reason, no longer sees it as useful. And I think that's very harmful to not just Black, the Black community, not just the Jewish community. I think it's harmful to every group that's fighting for, whether it's against sexism, against homophobia, against anti-Semitism or racism. I think it's harmful to every unique group. And I think it's pushing this identity or this uh, wish for an identity of sameness, which doesn't recognize the beauty in our differences and doesn't see us as a mosaic or a stew, but it's trying to create an element of a common identity without celebrating our different heritages or our different cultures.
which is something that, by the way, Marxism and communism always sought to do. Yeah, and I, I agree completely with uh, Dimitri's point here because um, we have to keep in mind that the the critique of intersectionality uh, goes back to that point of uh, transformation from the civil rights movement to the black nationalist movement because yeah. the black nationalist critique of the Jewish community was really in effect that you uh, joined on this movement as some type of intersectional effort, right? That's how they described the Jewish participation in the NAACP and all these other various movements because they understood that Jewish and African-American progress in America were interconnected. Yet at the end of the day, according to this critique, Jews moved forward and black folks stayed behind. And so as a result of that, there was all these other different movements particularly when you think about Stokely Carmichael and uh, Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam, they basically said, okay, this is what happens when we get involved with intersectionality. We need to put that aside and just focus on Black people and what uh, our needs are and to the exclusion of all others. Now there's been a resurgence of intersectionality, um, but it's been informed by, as Dimitri stated, this kind of Marxist blend. And that's intersectionality, not for the purpose of mutual progress, um, but more intersectionality for the purpose of this kind of, and this is the kind of conservative critique, this oppression Olympics, right? Who is the most oppressed? And as and based on who is the most oppressed, then we have to basically uh, only focus on their needs or compete for, and if that's the case, that we just need to focus on their needs based on them being the most oppressed, then it becomes a competition for then who's the most oppressed in this context. Um, and I don't think that helps us get, in, get anywhere. And this is kind of uh, the main issue I see with the muddling of the goals of the BLM movement uh, and the fact that it's not like, okay, here's a movement, here's an ideology, there's various organizations that are doing it in their own way, anybody can get behind it. Um, and because I think for any, while anybody can get connected with that slogan, which we all start off by saying, we all agree with the slogan, we identify with the slogan, we're all kind of, we're still kind of in this kind of confused space. Okay, but what does that mean in terms of like an ideology or, or, a, or a, a popular movement? I want to add in there with regards to intersectionality that I think the core idea behind intersectionality is 100% true and it is an important way to understand different challenges people face. Like that core, like that original example of like the black females not being accounted for when you just consider hiring of blacks and hiring of females is important because you miss huge groups if you don't take that lens as one of the ways that you look at a problem. That being said, I really don't understand where this idea of blowing that core concept into this idea of allyship, where you connect all of the weaker movements for the sake of them being weak to attack a stronger movement or connecting ideas that only connection is that both people feel like they're oppressed is a terrible way to look at the world and doesn't help move things forward but instead of looking for real similarities and real common ground to address real problems we're just grasping at this overarching idea that's been laid over top without any logic or justification in my mind. 
just one quick sentence. I think the justification is the is the Marxist critique, right? The justification yeah. is basically that Marxism identifies uh, society and social structures throughout the world across time and space as oppressors and oppressed. And if there's only oppressors and oppressed, then basically there's only uh, the victory of the oppressed over the oppressor. And I think we all understand as people that we, our identities, we stand in the middle of the intersection. And we understand that the problems that affect the Jewish community and the problems that affect the black community, while they may intersect in many ways, they're also very unique, right? We, each one has a unique set of challenges and overcoming the structures that oppress each group is going to look different. And that's the problem with kind of imposing by force, basically, this Marxist critique on as the solution for all of our problems in America. Yeah, that was think, an excellent addition. Yeah, I think uh, even even to add to that, I think not only just in the United States of America, but adopting like a global and universal perspective um, that people try and push this sort of Marxist ideology automatically debunks this idea of there being an oppressed and an oppressor and there being them automatically being the same. The clearest example that I'll say that I think is relevant, uh, given that, you know, all of us are here in Israel right now, also having spent our lives in the United States of America. Um, if you're looking at people who are oppressed versus the oppressor and you have movements, I, I forget which congressperson said this uh, exactly, um, but was speaking about oppression of people of color and saying that we need to stand up against right wing racists to oppress people of color, including in Israel, where you have right wing leaders like Benyahu. For anyone who's spent time in the United States and spent time in Israel and who knows anything about the history of the different Jewish communities in, in Israel who would be considered Jews of color in the United States, that the oppression and discrimination that they faced did not come from the same oppressors that black people and other people of color in the United States faced. The Israeli left and the American left look very different. Israeli right, American right look very different. And to try and, and even when it comes to class differences, they manifest themselves differently. Um, so I think it's very important to recognize that distinction and it becomes obvious that uh, people are getting exploited for basically this myth that everyone who's oppressed shares something inherently and has to fight against an oppressor who also shares something inherently within their identity. Um, and I think that that becomes extremely you know, obvious when you actually study the history of different groups of people. And this is when facts actually matter because regardless of the fact that you have racism in a bunch of different political spectrums in the United, in United States and also in Israel, um, it's not going to look the same. And if you look at the history of these Jews of color who are being oppressed by the right-wing parties, according to this congressperson in the United States, uh, and you take a closer look, you realize that these right-wing parties are actually, in occasion, viewed as liberators or victors who these oppressed minorities have been a part of throughout Israeli history. Um, and I think that that sort of nuance shows the importance of actually looking at distinctions and distinct issues of each community to be able to actually solve their issues. Because if you just try and paint it all as the exact same struggle, just copy and paste it in a different part of the world, it's impossible to make progress. So something that that um, stands out to me is how false narratives have kind of infiltrated a lot of um, so the policies that have come out of certain organizations that are affiliated with Black Lives Matter, like defund the police. One of the um, common things discussed was the deadly exchange, which is a trope that if uh, that American law enforcement gets uh, trained by Israeli law enforcement in order and they get trained to shoot and kill 
black people based on the lie that that's what Israeli police do to Arabs. So I, um, I'm, I'm curious what you think about pushing back against something that's an easily proven lie. I mean, in fact, I think it was just this past week that um, that there were, I don't remember which state or which, which district uh, American law enforcement received training from um, Israeli law enforcement and how actually to de-escalate situations because Israeli police have obviously, I'm sure you could speak about this more, have, have um, training in how to do that, where in, in an American context that, that lead, usually there's an escalation when law enforcement gets involved. Maybe not usually, but many times. Yeah, I just I'll just mentioned briefly that um, it, this goes exactly to the point that Noah was just making and this conflation between two very different uh, historical contexts and current realities and trying to paint this kind of false uh, parallel. Um, Israel doesn't have the, the history of chattel slavery and brutal anti-black racism that's kind of structural in the police system from the from the beginning and then America's basically in this process of unlearning these implicit and explicit biases and its uh, policing policies that just doesn't exist in Israel. Israel has its own set of problems right as a uh, former Israeli policeman I can tell you we have plenty of issues in our tactics and strategies and social structures and everything uh, that uh, we deal with on a daily basis in Israel but that does not overlap in a, in a clear or obvious manner with the problems uh, that are presented uh, to police in America. Um, and so certainly one of the main things that we focus on because uh, for good and for bad, the Israeli police are engaged in uh, policing in very intense uh, quarters and quarters that we know that if things escalate unnecessarily will just cause more human suffering uh, for our citizens. Um, so a lot of the training uh, that we do uh, across uh, countries, uh, is American police coming to Israel, Israeli police going over there to do training, is focused specifically on that, and, but more, uh, more than anything on counterterrorism, right? It's usually not focused on, uh, on the, the daily kind of community policing, the, pro the, the, the uh, circumstances in which the, the cases of violence uh, and the cases of anti-Black uh, violence uh, are usually happening. Uh, the, most of the training is happening in how uh, the best uh, practices that the Israeli police implement on a regular basis to respond to threat access to uh, terror threats. That's that's the majority of the relationship. Um, so this is really just a straw man. Uh, and just to go off of what David was saying earlier, and when you made the, the point that you made that okay, the, the facts here just do not uh, just do not um, uh, grant credence to this theory of this kind of. Uh, uh, cooperation to oppress black people across continents for me a big part of it is elevating the conversation so that we can figure out how to discuss things in a matter that makes sense so there is the narrative and there are individual facts and i don't like the term false narrative because narratives are facts but narratives can be based on true facts or false facts. So if we can take away that false narrative of term and just look at there is the facts, like we should be able to like, all right, let's put both of our narratives to the side and look at are Israeli police training American police officers? Yes, it's a fact. We can 
go look up the events where American police officers have come to Israel to get training. Now we can look at those training programs and see what they contain. And there is where we can prove that they're not training them how to beat up on brown people. They're training them things like de-escalation and those type of tactics, which you so excellently just described. And once we can get agree on a set of facts, now we can debate whose narrative better represents the reality that those facts present and be open to the fact that neither of our narratives is perfect, but we need to see which best fits the facts as we know them. And maybe, and this is the best one, through that type of discussion, my narrative will change a little bit and your narrative will change a little bit and we'll both get closer to reality. So one last question quickly. If you were heading up um, an organization affiliated with Black Lives Matter, and you're, you're very aware of all of this conversation and confusion and discord around the organization and the statement, what do you think would, what would be one th action that you would take to, to right the ship? I think first and foremost, it's important to distance. If I was you know, running this sort of organization to distance myself uh, in whatever chapter or element of the organization I was running from statements that I view as distractions from actual issues of anti-Black racism in the United States. So that doesn't mean that I'm gonna switch sides from saying, no, I'm, we're actually not pro-Palestinian, we're this or that. It's literally saying our organization is dedicated to Black people in America and the unique issues that we face. And when it comes to allyship and intersectionality, anyone who wants to be an ally to that cause can join, but I'm not gonna sit here groveling on CNN about how excited I am to see non-Black people showing up and taking over a movement um, because it's a distraction. I think first and foremost, it's important to refocus um, and to establish that this is not Black Lives Matter under the umbrella of Marxism globally to fight a class war. It's to address the issues of racial injustice in the United States uh, and Though I think also I agree with what you said earlier, uh, David, as far as issues in the black community as a whole, um, if it is responding to a specific issue of police brutality and police violence and uh, injustice within the justice system, um, even focusing specifically on that uh, would be acceptable. Um, and actually embedding, you know, instead of trying to take this perspective that's spreading Black Lives Matter, making it something that uh, black people in the United Kingdom who have a completely different set of history and issues uh, have to adopt and, and co-opt and figure out how to fit into their framework, focusing on the exact community that I live in. Because the fact of the matter is, even in the United States, there's a huge level of diversity and, and different sets of issues that people are going to face when it comes to racial injustice, whether that's environmental issues that disproportionately affect black people, issues with health care, issues with food access, uh, issues with police brutality and police violence issues with political uh, access um, when it comes to voting rights. These are a whole host of issues that vary state to state, even city to city. Uh, and it's important for each organization to say, if we're gonna be a grassroots movement, we need to address the issues that are happening on the ground. Well, I agree with that. And I think that it's important that while we do remember um, those who have been lost to police violence and that while we do advocate for change in that arena, we also need to think about Black lives mattering 
that don't have to do with police violence, but that are suffering in other ways. So the issue of the water poisoning in Flint, Michigan has still gone unaddressed. It's sort of been used as a talking point during political campaigns and then forgotten and ignored. The Black Lives Matter movement I would have expected would have focused on that and focused on protesting for cleaning the water system there for in other places as well. Um, communities with lots of crime, as David mentioned earlier, what are we gonna do about that? What are we gonna do about uh, urban blight that has affected many black communities? Why have we not demolished many of these empty homes that have been like that for decades and instead built a park or community gardens there to address the issue of food deserts? Black Lives Matter has to go beyond just police brutality or structural racism in that sense and focus on improving the day-to-day -day issues that affect many of our communities. And that is another step that I would prioritize um, alongside and maybe in some places and in some ways even ahead of um, the issues of police brutality or defund the police at least. And I think that's also a way of getting other people who otherwise may be scared off or confused about the general messaging now on board with the movement. Say this isn't just about um, issues of defunding the police or controversial ideology about Marxism, but also improving day-to-day -day life that most Americans uh, face, regardless of skin color, but in particular, um, people that are impoverished. If I was in that position, my main focus for organization would be responding aggressively towards any fair criticism with the goal of creating partnerships with the critics. For example, if someone were to criticize like, oh, like as Black Lives Matter, you're so focused on the police, won't you do anything about the black on black community of the crime? I'd say, yes, that is a fair criticism. Let's do a joint venture together. You get your people, I get my people so we can address that because you are right. When people say like, oh, you're such a corrupt organization, I'd be like, yes, many Black Lives Matter organizations have done some corrupt things. How can we be extra transparent with our finances well and beyond what's required by law to rebuild that faith that my organization was being run well and spending the money in correct ways? Kind of respond to the criticism and use it to try to, again, build relationships and create allies on these issues that people care about. And I think that would be how I try to get the ship back on course. So if I was in that position, um, I think I would still make, put the primary focus on police brutality, not because it's the worst uh, problem plaguing Black people in America, but uh, because it's it's easy for people to rally around it. I think we have to be very, uh, very clear on that point. Because when I see uh, a racist cop beating somebody uh, to a pulp or killing somebody because they're Black uh, and that person is white or they represent a racist system in a very clear and obvious manner, it's not only easy for me to get motivated to take action, it's easy for me to organize people as well. Um, and so I think while uh, that would still be the main point that I would focus on for organizing, I would make sure to take advantage of that opportunity to then extend it to other issues like the ones that were raised uh, by Dimitri and by David. Now, in terms of the pitfalls of 
partnership building and navigating these waters of intersectionality, I think that the most important way to go about it uh, is by making sure that your membership and your activists are a diverse representation of what is Black America today, right? So if we want to, to make sure that we avoid these pitfalls, then we make sure that within the organization, there are Black Jews, there are Black Muslims, there are Black Christians, there are Black atheists, there's everybody within that community that is being most affected by these problems that is able to be in tune with what's going on in these other intersectional camps. It's great. Thank you all for um, talking with me today about, about this. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Hey!